Well, it's my privilege to open God's Word this morning to you, and I would invite you again to turn to the book of Hebrews. This morning, we're finishing, Lord willing, we're finishing Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 20. I want to begin by sharing a little bit of a story from a book called The Power of Integrity, because I believe that the display of integrity here in the text is unrivaled. But just to get our juices flowing, I'll mention a a famous runner, Eric Little, the Flying Scot. He had an uncompromising spirit as an Olympic sprinter. And we most often know him from the famous movie, Chariots of Fire. Little trained to run the 100-meter dash in the Paris Olympics of 1924, and he was predicted to win. But when schedules announced, and they were, they were announced earlier, uh, months before, that the heats were to be run on Sunday, he faced a very difficult decision. Because by conviction, Eric Little was a Sabbatarian, so he considered running a work that he could not do. He believed it would dishonor God to compete on the Lord's Day, so he refused to run, and he stunned fans, and people called him a fool. A professor, Neil Campbell, a fellow student-athlete, describes the decision. He said, Little was the last person to make a song and dance about that sort of thing. He just said, I'm not running on a Sunday, and that was that. And he would have been very upset if anything much had been made of it at the time. He thought it was completely in character, or we thought it was completely in character, and a lot of the athletes were quietly impressed by it. They felt that here was a man who was prepared to stand for what he thought was right without interfering with anyone else and without being dogmatic. Little knew the heat schedule and... He declined the 4 by 100 and the 4 by 400 meter relays also to be run on Sunday. But he was such a popular athlete that the British Olympic Committee could not completely let it go. So they asked if he would train for the 400 meter race. And it turned out that he performed very well in it during the practice trials. And he trained for it and discovered that he was a natural at that distance. His wife, Florence, said, Eric always said that the great thing for him was that when he stood by his principles and refused to run in the 100 meters, he found that the 400 meters was really his race. He would not have known otherwise. Little went on to win the 400 meters and set an Olympic world record. And God honored his uncompromising spirit. Well, in the movie, almost by accident, right, unknowingly, um, they provided the answer in a scene dramatizing the, the British Olympic authorities and their attempt to change Little's mind about running in the 100 meters. They were unsuccessful, and after they were unsuccessful to do it, one of the committee members commented and said, the lad is a true man of principle, a true athlete. His speed is a mere extension of his life It's force. He sought to sever his running. We sought to sever his running from himself. 
So in spite of labeling God a force in that quote, the true principle of Liddell is important for us in the Christian life. We cannot live our Christian life apart from God himself, right? We have to run our Christian race, our Christian endurance run in our lifetime in the strength and the power that God provides uncompromisingly. We have to be settled that God's integrity has to influence our own integrity to rely on him. And if we don't do that, we compromise everything in the Christian walk. When people compromise their integrity, scandals are on the rise, right? When a coach compromises his integrity, the team is destined to have a bad season. If the employer's integrity is besmirched, then you know how employees don't work as hard for them. There's been headlines even in the church of late of compromise there in a denomination, compromise in a church leader. It melts things down in a hurry. On a government scale, there's always attacks even against the highest office in the land, the president, always trying to accuse him of lately international collusion. And uh, the attackers, wherever you are on that issue, the attackers know that if they can bring that up and make that stick, it will drain his leadership influence down to empty. Well, Hebrews six thirteen to 20 is a mission to do the opposite. Uh, the author is trying to infuse what he says in verse 18 as a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. He wants Christians to have a strong encouragement in their heart as they run their race. He wants them to have a strong faith, not in yourself, but as verse 11 says, an earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Not being sluggish, but being strong with full assurance as a Christian that you are on the right path, in the right race, running with endurance, running with strength. A sluggish Christian is a Christian who has no assurance of their salvation at all and will run slowly. A strong-hearted Christian will run with endurance. Verse 18, it ends by saying that we should have a hope that is set before us. It's the same language as Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. The race that is set before us, being surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, as if we're running in an arena with heaven's saints, men and women who've gone before, who are cheering us on, looking down as witnesses of Christ, saying, we are for you. Run the race with endurance that's set before you, looking to Jesus who's standing at the finish line, the author and perfecter of your faith. This is the theme of this book. And here's the principle. God's personal integrity, which is the highest integrity achievable, His integrity to what he promises for you secures your integrity to run your race in strength. God's personal integrity to what he promises, it secures your Christian integrity to run in strength. You don't dig down deeper within to find strength. You look to the strongest one 
who is on your side, who has the highest integrity. What does this integrity look like? Look at verse 13. It says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Let's stop there. The big idea again is God has indisputably higher integrity than any other being. And he's proving that God's promises, the author's proving that God's promises are always kept. And this ties back to verses 11 and 12 to give us this full assurance. We need to have a proof, a full assurance of hope to the end. The writer picks his favorite example, Abraham. Abraham is called the father of faith. He's the progenitor of what it looks like to believe in the gospel, even the Old Testament gospel. We follow his faith. We need to be believers like he was. He was a marathoner. Luke references Abraham 15 times in his gospel and John 11 times. The writer of Hebrews 10 times. The nature of the promise here is our encouragement. It shows us God's faithfulness and his grandeur. And his promise here, this covenantal promise is the golden thread from Genesis 3.15, where there's that first gospel promise where Satan's head will be crushed. Christ's heel will be bruised, but Satan's head will be crushed. And that gospel promise goes all the way through to the new heavens and the new earth through the end of Revelation, Revelation 22. But I want you to go back to Genesis. I want to look at this promise. I'm going to take a 30,000 foot flyover of the promise given to Abraham. It's given in several promise accounts. It's as if there's several promises given to Abraham over and over again as he's running the race and marathon endurance. But really it's one promise. And this is our promise that we have to hang on to. Genesis 12, one says, now the Lord said to Abram, he was named Abram before Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's reiterated again in 12 verse seven, the Lord appeared to Abram to your offspring. I will give this land, build an altar there. Genesis 15, one, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. Now, Abram now is again, trying to endure, trying to be patient, trying to see the Lord provide an offspring so that this thing could get kicked off. But Abraham is no spring chicken, right? He's getting older and older. And from the time of the year of the Chaldees to when the Lord provided was 25 years. So he's enduring for years. Like we endure through life trials and say, Lord, when will this be over? It's been a decade. Now it's another decade. Well, Abraham became frustrated. Abram at this point, the Lord said, fear not Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continued 
childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. So Abram becomes pragmatic. You're not following through. This isn't happening for me. Becomes frustrated. He says, I'm going to just have a stand in here and we're going to work it out this way. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir for your very own son shall be your heir. God did not heed this accusation against his perfect nature. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and the number and number the stars if you were able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Believe, Abram, believe is what he's saying. And he believed the Lord. It was counted to him as righteousness. He believed and God said, I'm going to give you grace. You are my child. You are completely righteous. Genesis 17, 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. And I, that I may make my covenant between you, me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram for your name shall be Abraham. That's pluralizing his name. The idea of the multitude of nations that he would be the father of. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, make you into nations and kings shall come from you. So then finally it comes to Genesis 18, nine. This is the beginning of a practical fulfillment. They said, where is your wife? Where is Sarah, your wife? Three angels appear. One of them is the angel of the Lord, which I believe is a Christophany, Christ himself speaking in the Old Testament. And he said, she is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. Sarah was barren. She's 90. She's old. Says the way of the woman has ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, meaning Abraham is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Listen to this promise. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The appointed time I'll return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah denied it saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. She knew something was up. He said, no, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there and they looked down toward Sodom and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And here's the promise again, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Let me ask this question just to frame up the principle again. Is God's promise dependent upon Abraham or Sarah's perfect obedience? Yes or no? No. Did they have perfect integrity? No. That's why the Old Testament gives us windows into how people that we revere, people that we um, follow and imitate, we want to follow Abraham's faith, but he stumbled. 
He stumbled. They laughed. They doubted. Abram, Abram tried to get a stand in for God's promise. He accused God of not fulfilling things. It's all to expose that the promise fulfillment is based on God, who God is, not who we are. So important to understand that. All these promises build to culminate in one scene and one promise found in Genesis 22. This is the most dramatic scene in Abraham's life. He's asked to sacrifice his own son. You might turn there to Genesis 22. Look at Genesis 22 verses 1 and 2. So dramatic. After these things, God tested Abraham. I mean, it's been a test all along, but let's bring it to the apex and said, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him. There as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So what did Abraham do? He arose, he rose early in the morning, saddled the donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. He is languishing, heartbroken, I'm I'm certain, understanding that his son is wrestling with where is the sacrifice? Verse five, Abraham said to his, to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Isaac is, is bringing up the wood as the sacrifice. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife and they went, of, of both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Obviously his son allowed for this. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord, I believe this is Christ interrupting this scene, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not Lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. that amazing? Jesus showing up in the Old Testament. You did not withhold your son from me. Ken Hughes said, with blade poised for descent, the angel of heaven called Abraham, Abraham. And we know the rest of the story, but the point is to remember the final pronouncement of the angel of the Lord because it has everything to do with our text here. Genesis 22, look at verse 16 and 17. The angel of the Lord, Christ is saying, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. This is a doubly binding promise. Do you see that? Because in verse 16, he says, by myself, I have sworn. 
The point is, going back to Hebrews chapter 6, is that God took an oath by himself. God literally put himself up as collateral that he would fulfill this promise. So you have an oath and you have a promise. You have God saying, I will unilaterally base my faithfulness on myself. I will stake my reputation and my deity on my commitment to this promise. So you have Abraham who's up and down and working it out. And you have God who's strong and steady. How does this work? What does this look like? I have to go to one, one more place that I think is so important for us to see. And it's Hebrews 11. If you'll look a couple chapters over from Hebrews 6, this is Abraham. This is the commentary on what was going on in Abraham's head during this narrative. What was he thinking about as he did these things? Look at this. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Abraham went. He didn't know where he was going. He went anyway. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of him of the same promise. For he was looking forward. And this is so important for you to see. Abraham is looking through uh, the eyes of faith here. He's seeing beyond the promised land. He's looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. For by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised, therefore, from one man and him as good as dead. There's some humor in the Bible. Abraham, you were as good as dead, man. Born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Abraham didn't even see that fulfillment, but he knew it would happen. And by, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, he believed it was going to happen. He greeted it from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Look at verse 16. It says, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And then verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, though Isaac, through Isaac, all Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Look at verse 19. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. What that means is that as Abraham raised the knife, he was so secure at that moment that God was going to be faithful to the promise that God had made, basing his promise on his own character, God's own character, that he believed, well, if I kill my son, The promise is based on my son being alive. So my son's going to have to come back to life and God will just do that. He'll just do that. And it's as if he did because God intervened and stopped that process and he did receive back his son. Let me just show you from these things that Abraham, his faith was not passive. When we rely on God's 
character in and of itself to get us through. That's not a passive reliance. Do you see that? It's not, well, we'll let God be God and God is sovereign. So now I'm going to check out and I'm not going to think about anything. No, Abraham was active. He was actively obeying. And that's the whole point picked up in James 2, 21. Abraham, our father, justified by works. What does that mean? It wasn't that he did something that made him righteous. It's that Abraham did something because he was doing it by faith and God had made him righteous. Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Abraham was looking always as he was working through the eyes of faith, seeing that through this promise, a Messiah would come. And Jesus testified of that faith to the Pharisees. Well, verse 17, back to Hebrews 6, um, picks up on how this applies to all of us. We have to look at verse 16. I mean, again, for people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes, disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So stop there. What the author is doing now is moving from Abraham who made it 25 years, trusting the promise of God. He obtained it. He obtained the promise, verse 15 says. He believed the promise. He was patient through it. And then verse 16 and 17 applies this broadly to what verse 17 calls the heirs of the promise. Who are the heirs of the promise? That's you and me and everyone who's gone before us in Christianity. Those who are believers, those who are followers of the faith of Abraham. There's a bridge being built here in verse 16 as he describes an oath. What is an oath? He's saying, in general, in society, people swear by something greater than themselves. That's the oath. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. The oath is what figures things out. The idea here in verse 16 is that in general... Society is filled with a bunch of people who have less than good integrity. People in, I know this isn't your experience, but people in general lie, right? There's a lot of lying that goes on. That's why you have contracts. That's why you have business agreements. That's why any of you who is a businessman or woman creates contracts for people to sign, right? That where copies are made and filed so that they can be reproduced to say, you know what? You agreed to do this. It's because people generally lack integrity because of the fall, because of its influence. That's why when you go on vacation and you rent a boogie board, they say, may I have your license to hold please or your keys because I want to see that again, Right? I mean, that's what happens when you sign a mortgage, you know, where you sign a million papers. A lot of times you're putting up collateral or you're you're exposing your assets to show them that you'll make good on your payment. That's what verse 16 is saying. There'll be a dispute, but the oath, the contract will come back for final confirmation. If you're a witness in court, you have to place your right hand on the Bible 
And then you say, you know, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God? And you say, I will. Why is that statement so important? It's, it's to try in that moment to bind a sinner's conscience to actually tell the truth in a solemn way. That's what's happening. So why does he bring this up? Does, he, does the author bring this up to say that God needed to do that so that he would fulfill his integrity? No. If God says something and makes a promise, his word is therefore settled in heaven, right? God did not need to swear by himself for his own sake. I guess in one sense, he probably did that for his own glory to say, I am testifying publicly that I have integrity. He has his own glory, doesn't give his glory to anyone else. He wants to fan that flame by fanning the flame of his own glory that is actually the most righteous thing he could do because there is no higher being. And by him stating that he is the supreme object of integrity, it points our eyes to him to trust him even more. But that's not why he made the oath to himself. He made the oath to himself for our benefit. He testifies to his own commitment for our own good. Again, the point of this passage is for believers to keep running, to keep marathoning, to keep going. Life is hard. Life is difficult. Life has joy. Life has peace. Life has hope. But the Christian needs to be reinvigorated and infused with encouragement. Don't you? Speak to me, don't you? We need this. We need to know God is who God said he is. God is faithful and he makes a commitment to himself that he will follow through in the promise that he's made. Look at verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, that word purpose, bulomai, it's the, it's the determined resolve of what he was going to do. He guaranteed it with an oath. He wanted to show you something that he will follow through, that he's putting his own reputation on display to say that he will do what he said he would do. Do you know what the oath is in the New Testament? You know what the guarantee, the surety is in the New Testament? If this was class time, I would ask you to raise your hand, but I'm not going to do that. The oath commitment to us is the witness of the Holy Spirit. The oath of the truthfulness of the gospel is the witness of the Holy Spirit. Let that sink in. God gives you his pledge. The third member of the Trinity resides in us to tell you as I'm preaching that this is true. To the degree that I'm preaching the word of God, the witness of the spirit says yes and amen. Yes and amen. We cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy. We are your sons and daughters. We know this is true. We are convinced this is true. We know the gospel is true. We know that happened on Mount Moriah. We know that means something in terms of Jesus Christ, God's only son who died for us. A ram was provided Caught in the thicket, Jesus is provided for us. Jehovah Jireh, he is provided. Yes and amen, we are saved. That's strong encouragement. 
Let me tell you, in the Christian life, the witness of the Holy Spirit comes from the word of God and we have to go back to the word of God again and again, not just to read it, but to experience the witness of the Holy Spirit that it's all true and it's all real and we're moving down a path in our life, in our lifetime for his glory. 2 Corinthians 1, 22 says, who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That's the word oath. 2 Corinthians 5, 5, he's 5, 5. He has prepared us for this very thing. This is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. Ephesians 1, 14, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the wedding ring. This is what God has placed as a seal in our heart, as a down payment where we know that the gospel is true, is coming true and will come true in our lives. Let me use that as a bridge and a transition to what more we have here. Because the writer very beautifully from verses 18 to 20 answers a question that I have often in the Christian life. And it's this. I believe that God will get me through the finish line to the finish line and crossing the finish line and to heaven. I believe that. I believe it. But I need to believe that in a way that's helping me today. Do you ever have that moment? Well, the writer here answers that for us because it's not enough for his promise to mean something for the future. It has to come to today to the now because we're running hard now in verses 18 to 20 answers how this applies to us in our practical daily life we're moving from god's integrity verses 18 to 20 to what we see here is our integrity so it says so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for god to lie we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Stop there. Verse 18, it's retracing ground that we've just tread. It's to solidify that the believer's integrity is not based on our integrity, but it's based on God's integrity And Christian integrity flows as fruit from trusting in God's integrity. That's a very important distinction for you to make. We're not called to dig down deeper as we run the race. Now, that's what we do in athletics. We dig deeper. We should also trust God more if you're a Christian athlete, right? But that's not how the Christian race is run. We dig down deeper in faith as we're trusting God, not ourselves. You don't try harder to run longer. You trust more and God gives you the strength to run harder and longer. He anchors this in two unchangeable things. The two unchangeable things are God's oath and his promise. He's given you the seal of his Holy Spirit that reflects back to the oath and commitment to himself that he made to Abraham. And he also gives you the promise of the gospel. This is God's integrity and it's unchangeable. Do you see that? 
two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Again, he's putting his own character up as collateral here. He's saying these are unchangeable bedrock foundations for you. And it's impossible for God's nature to contradict the fulfillment of this in your life. It's impossible. If God could contradict himself, everything would melt down. It seems odd to say that it's impossible for God to not do anything, but he can't by his very nature contradict himself. And I've covered this before a couple sermons ago, four impossible things that are mentioned throughout the book of Hebrews earlier in chapter six, verses four to six, it's impossible for those who have fallen away at that level of apostasy. People have walked away in a hard hearted state. It becomes impossible to restore them again to repentance. That's because that would contradict the justice of God. God is just. God is a God who will punish sin. And at that point with those particular people at that level of exposure to Christ, if they reject Christ, it's as if they are re-crucifying him. God, it's impossible for him to do that. And it's impossible for God to lie. That's what's mentioned here in chapter six, verse 18. That's reflecting the truthfulness of God. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said he will do it and he will, he has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Numbers 23, Titus chapter one, verse two, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. John fourteen six. Jesus said, I'm the way, the what? The truth and the life, the spirit of truth is what dwells within us. The Holy Spirit, he cannot contradict this. And then chapter 10, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This is because God requires a divine and perfect holy sacrifice. The once for all sacrifice Christ. God will not contradict grace by trying to get people to heaven through works. It's impossible for God to contradict his grace. In chapter 11, without faith, it's impossible to please him. It's impossible to do that. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Meaning man has to believe in God, not the reverse. God does not believe in God. Man is called to believe in God for salvation. And this is the definition of faith. God will not contradict faith. God doesn't contradict his own nature. Again, he's putting himself up as collateral saying that if I'm going to contradict myself, everything would melt away. And so there's no way that I could ever do that. Well, the integrity here is Christian integrity is defined in two ways. It's the fruit of trusting God and his integrity, but the fruit of that comes out in two ways. First of all, verse 18, it says, we who have fled for refuge, a Christian will run from something. A true Christian is running a race and you run from the world and you run from your flesh and you run from the devil, right? You run from the world. You're not part of this world. We're in it, but we're not of it, as the old slogan says. We, we become unattracted to worldliness 
and we don't like what worldliness does to us in our conscience, it becomes distasteful. We run from it. We separate ourselves from influences that are bad and evil. We don't like it. It's counterintuitive to our Christian walk and our Christian faith. We run from our own flesh. We're running from what's the enemy within. We're running from things that we don't like about ourselves. We run from sin and we repent of it. And then thirdly, we resist Satan himself and he flees from us. Cities of refuge is kind of hearkened here with verse 18 in the Old Testament. People would flee, refugees would flee from their cities to the Holy Land. They would flee to Jerusalem. There were designated areas in the Promised Land, Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 19, Joshua 20. If someone accidentally killed someone and they were being pursued, they could flee to a city of refuge. Missionaries in the New Testament are seen in the book of Acts, Acts 14, fleeing to places like Lystra for safety. Christians have found refuge in Christ. A lot of people try to come up here to Anchorage and to Alaska to find refuge, right? It's sort of a picture of escape. Our escape isn't running from our problems. Our escape is running to the ultimate solution. And that's Christ. That's Christ. We need to be that place here in Anchorage where people who might be running from something can run to somewhere, right? We want people to run in here and find refuge in Christ. Secondly, they run towards something. Believers, as we have said, run towards heaven. They hold fast to the hope set before us. This is the race, the hope. Hope here is, by the way, not subjective, it's objective. Hope in the Bible, for you, uh, you know, Greek sharks and Bible students, just listen to this. Anytime hope is stated in the New Testament, it's elpidos. Anytime it's there, that's a divine assurance. It's never a fateful wish. You're not hoping something works out. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love, but as rock solid as our faith is, our hope is that rock solid. Heaven is guaranteed. We're running towards that end. But as I said before, the future is reassured, but we need to be reassured not just For one day, we need to be reassured for today. Amen? Let me show you where the writer does this. He says in verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. He's talking about hope. Not just the hope of heaven, but the hope of right now. It's a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain As we run, Christian integrity is built on this anchor of hope. It's very important in regular athletics, and I was never a runner. I was never a good runner. My dad was a good runner. Um, I have feet that are flat and narrow. I don't even know how I walk around. But, um, But running, as I understand it, is, uh, is built on pace, it's built on form, and I would think it would be built on self-awareness. When I swim, it has a lot to do with self-awareness. You have to have a positive attitude 
or you will start declining. You won't swim as fast or in running, you won't run as hard. And so there's this self-awareness where you're running, but you are aware inside in your mindset that you need to keep going. And you're listening to yourself. You're listening to your breathing as you run, inhale and exhale. And you're keeping going as you work, never giving up, pacing along. That's the idea here of this steadfast anchor of the soul. That's where the author is talking about your soul. He's talking about how are you anchored? You're running hard, but are you anchored in your soul to keep running hard? It's a symbol of hope here. In the catacombs, the early Christians would etch on the wall, not only the ichthus fish, but an anchor. 60 of them were found in the catacombs. The anchor is a regular symbol in Greek literature, but it's only mentioned here once in the New Testament. A ship would never depend on one anchor, uh, this one Greek philosopher said, Epitectus. You'd never depend on one anchor or a life with only one hope. Pythagoras said, wealth is a weak anchor, fame is still weaker. Um, What then are the anchors which are strong wisdom, great heartedness, courage? These are the anchors which no storm can shake. Is that true? Well, kind of, but Christ is the only true anchor. He's the only real hope. He's the anchor of the soul. And this anchor is pictured here in an amazing way. It's pictured as going behind the inner curtain. Now, the inner curtain is a very dangerous place to go behind. You would not want to do that in the Old Testament. Aaron has said, look, you better only do this once a year. And things better be right and meticulously thought through and perfect or you're going to die. Leviticus 12, speaking of the day of atonement, Moses is told by the Lord, tell brother Aaron not to come at any time into the holy place, not just any day, any time, don't just do it any day inside the veil so that he may not die. You're gonna die if you do that. You go behind that curtain at risk of death. It's the presence of God there. It's the mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant is there. This is the presence of God. You don't just enter in there glibly. Exodus 28, 35. Should be that Aaron, when he ministers and its sound shall be heard. These are the golden bells that were attached to the bottom of the robe garment of the high priest. The sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord. And when he comes out, why? Why did you need the sound? so that he does not die. The point is that if the the bells stop ringing, he's dead in there. Listen, the holy place was barred from people in the Old Testament. This is a very, very strong reference to say God's presence is not barred for the new new covenant Christian, New Testament Christian. It's wide open. As grave as that scene would be in the Old Testament, it is completely flipped on its head, so much so that it's as if Christ has the anchor of your soul, all that you're hoping for to get through every day of your life, and he throws it around the curtain. Remember, he rent the curtain in two at the cross, and that anchor lodges right next to the Ark of the Covenant, right before the mercy seat. That's where your soul is. So as you run and you fight 
and you wrestle and you try to get through your day and you're pacing yourself, where you go in your heart is I'm anchored in the integrity of God's gospel because I'm anchored at the mercy seat of Christ. Guess what? How safe is it for you to actually believe that? Verse 20 tells us, this is where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. As you marathon, you can know Jesus marathoned at first. He ran the marathon before you did. And he ran right into the inner sanctum and made it safe and made it secure and brought that anchor there and holds you safe. We're going to talk about Melchizedek next week and we're going to bring all that up. So I'm not going to unpack verse 20 so much, but just to say that the word forerunner is only used here in this way once in the New Testament. It was used twice by Christ when he was comforting his disciples. When he said in John 14, one and two, I go to prepare a place for you. I literally, it's a verbal, I'm forerunning for you. I'm going to heaven for you to make that place safe. Well, guess what? He has made heaven safe for you now. Don't deny yourself the presence of God Practice the presence of God because he's there. He's there as you run. He's there.